before the voucher came in and paying my own bills, um, if I had to miss a day of work, then I knew my check was going to be short. And that would cause stress because of if it's short, then that means one of the bills is going to be late. But when I got on the voucher program, it was a lot better because if if your kid is sick or you're sick and you call in, your rent will still get paid. Rochelle is a professional photographer and the mother of three boys. She lives in the Dallas area where she loves to go trail riding on her bike. According to Rochelle, she's just a fun person. <laughs> and Rochelle, who asked us not to use her last name, is also a participant in the Housing Choice Voucher Program. Section 8, as it is popularly known, is the federal government's largest rental assistance program. Funded by the Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD, vouchers subsidize the cost of rental housing on the private market for low-income families. Rochelle describes the Dallas neighborhood she lived in before she used a voucher to move her family. The neighborhood um, had cars coming and going. It's um, a lot of parties on the street. Even um, late at night, um, there were couples fighting. A couple that stayed next door to me that always was fighting all the way up to 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. The family lived in a two-bedroom apartment. Which was not enough room for us, but we made do. Until they didn't have to anymore. Now um, we're in a three-bedroom, which is a lot more space and a lot more um, comfortable. I actually live in a house now, so I do have a yard, a very big yard. So yeah, <laughs> it's a lot better. Rochelle moved her family from Dallas to Plano, Texas, a nearby city with high median incomes and a low poverty rate. Love the town. Plano is pretty quiet. Um, it's family oriented. The people are very friendly. I'm happy to be here because it's a new. It's the atmosphere is different. It's friendlier here. You know, if you get lost, it's okay to stop and ask somebody for directions and they don't have an attitude about it. It was very easy to meet people out here. First day moving in, the neighbors brought over a cake, welcome to the neighborhood. It was very welcoming. Rochelle waited for four years to get her voucher, and she's one of the lucky ones. More than two and a half million households participate in the Housing Choice Voucher Program, but it doesn't come close to meeting the need for rental relief in the United States. Here's Doug Rice, a special policy advisor for the HUD division that administers the Housing Choice Voucher Program. You know, in contrast to most other parts of the federal safety net, you know, Medicaid, SNAP, used to be known as food stamps, those are entitlement programs. Everyone who meets the base eligibility requirements uh, will receive assistance. That's not the case when it comes to federal housing assistance, at least rental assistance. And so currently only about one in four eligible households receives any type of federal rental assistance. Uh, and that's uh, due strictly to the funding limitations. It still just meets a fraction of, of the demand. In some parts of the country, the wait for a Section 8 voucher can stretch for a decade or even more. But for Rochelle, it was worth the wait. She explains how she felt after moving. How's my stress level from Dallas to Plano? It's a lot better because now I can actually leave my home and leave my 13-year-old at home by itself or my 18-year-old at home by itself and not have to worry about 
is that neighbor going to be outside fighting his wife or is somebody going to throw something and it's going to hit my window and hurt one of my kids? I didn't feel comfortable leaving them at home by themselves. I actually feel safer now. It's to the point where my child can ride a school bus and get off the bus and walk home without worrying about any um, drama from the neighborhood. Plano is like a relief. Rochelle breathed a sigh of relief when she moved to Plano for good reason. It's long been known that people live longer in wealthier communities. The disparities between rich and poor are most jarring in American cities. Wealthy, long-lived neighborhoods are often a short but rarely taken cab ride away from poor areas. And the neighborhoods sometimes have shockingly different health and longevity results. In the Dallas region, the life expectancy between wealthy and poor neighborhoods swings by nearly a quarter century. In our last two episodes of the season, we explore the challenges of concentrated urban poverty and the depressive effect it has on health and life expectancy. And we examine two different approaches that might remedy it. In our last episode, we reported from Birmingham, Alabama, where we told you a story about staying. We saw the good things that can happen when a community works together to rehabilitate a neighborhood. This week, a story about going on a grand scale and the fundamental question of who gets to live where. From the Stanford Center on Longevity, this is Century Lives, Place Matters. I'm your host, Ken Stern. The public housing system played a pivotal role in the development of the modern American city and its patchwork of deeply divided neighborhoods. To understand how we got here, we need to turn back the clock to examine public housing's checkered past. The United States has built uh, a separate and unequal system of neighborhoods uh, as a result of racist policies and institutional practices over more than a century. That's Marjorie Turner. She's a fellow at the Urban Institute and a nationally recognized expert on public housing. So initially, by law, projects were built in white neighborhoods for lower-income people that were white, and projects were built either in black neighborhoods or in neighborhoods that hadn't yet been developed on the other side of the tracks for occupancy by black families. And Early in the program, families were assigned to projects based on their race. So there is a terrible history of racial discrimination and segregation and then unequal management and investment that runs with the public housing program. People were segregated not only by race, but also by class. Our primary solution to the housing challenges facing people with low incomes was to build apartments for them uh, that were deeply subsidized and dedicated to their occupancy. These projects were owned and operated by public housing authorities and only housed low-income residents. And they were typically built in areas isolated from jobs, decent schools, and adequate services. And there were very legitimate concerns about uh, the conditions in those projects. You know, we began building them after the Depression and during World War II. So some of them were getting pretty old. And um, 
Uh, the quality of construction was not great in all of them. Maintenance management was poor in some. Some of them were very, very, very large and in very distressed neighborhoods. Many of these public housing projects were notorious for their violence. Cabrini Green in Chicago, Jordan Downs in Los Angeles, the Marcy projects in New York City. And through the 1960s, that was the sad state of American public housing. Until Dorothy Gautreau came along. Dorothy Gautreau was a black woman uh, living in Chicago's public housing. The Gautreau litigation charged um, both HUD and the Chicago Housing Authority with systematically discriminating against black people and the public housing projects and neighborhoods in which they lived. The federal courts agreed that public housing in Chicago violated the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Fifth Amendment. To remedy the case, the Chicago Public Housing Authority created the Gautreau Housing Demonstration. One stream of the remedy was uh, to offer housing vouchers, this new tool, to families, black families who either lived in public housing or were on the waiting list, and require that they use that voucher to move to a predominantly white neighborhood. The hope was that the Gautreau demonstration would prove that housing vouchers help families flourish outside the entrenched poverty of the projects. Early results were exciting. Researchers found that kids did better in school, and parents, mostly single mothers, found better jobs. They saw a growth in income even though the program offered no job training or placement services. These findings were a revelation to urban planners and social scientists. Stephanie DeLuca is a sociology professor at Johns Hopkins University. You know, up until this point, a lot of the way that we thought of public policy was grounded in, you know, if you were poor or un unemployed, you just needed more skills to be given to you. The, the work really suggested that where you live could also matter over and above who you are. Marjorie Turner again. It became a big deal among researchers because evidence was beginning to point to the profound effects that the neighborhoods in which we live have on our lives and on our kids' prospects. And so sociologists, economists, planners, many social science disciplines became more and more interested in this question of what effect does neighborhood have and how does that work? After Gautreau, urban reformers thought a revamped public housing program could actually stimulate integration and economic mobility. To test that idea on a much larger scale, HUD launched one of the largest social science experiments in modern American history, the Moving to Opportunity Demonstration. MTO was designed to answer the question, if poor families move into safer and more stable neighborhoods, would the parents make more money, and would children perform better in school? Mark Schroeder has worked for HUD's Office of Policy Development and Research since the early 1990s. He was instrumental in the launch of MTO. He describes how the demonstration was set up. So the random assignment occurred between 1994 and 1998. Uh, the sites were Baltimore, Boston, Chicago, Los Angeles, New York. Uh, there were 4,600 families involved, um, which is big by the standards of random experiments. 
Um, and they were families with children living in public housing in high poverty census tracts, neighborhoods with more than 40% of people living below the poverty line. Almost all of the households that signed up for MTO were families with single moms. Two-thirds were Black, and most of the rest were Latino. MTO offered some of them a way out. Here's Stephanie DeLuca again. It would come to be called by the New York Times uh, the, uh, the New Underground Railroad. Nearly three-quarters of MTO participants said their number one reason for enrolling the program was their desire to get away from the violence and gangs in their neighborhoods. Marjorie Turner remembers their fear. The families cared most about safety. They talked about the terrible violence uh, in their communities, about the fear that created and the way it constrained how they could raise their kids. I mean, they talked about not letting your children just go outside and play, about putting their kids to bed in the bathtub so they'd be safe. Um, Getting away from this violence and fear of violence was the biggest thing the families talked about when people asked them why they were doing this. Families that enrolled in MTO were randomly assigned to one of three groups, a control group that stayed in the projects, a regular voucher group that could move anywhere they wanted, and a moving-to-opportunity voucher group. They had to use their voucher to move to a neighborhood where less than 10% of residents lived in poverty. Marjorie Turner elaborates. Families also got a lot of help and support um, moving in, getting settled, making the connections that they needed. So you were not completely isolated in a strange place. There was no, you know, fabulous welcome mat. And the moms were lonely. They moved to places where they didn't know people um, and didn't and, and, and didn't have a network of family, friends, and social supports. And I think, you know, these are, this was these were courageous moves for people to make, um, and they did it for their kids. And it takes a lot to move out of your neighborhood, the devil you know, to a new unknown place. Yet families did it anyway. Rochelle moved to get away from the instability of her living situation and to offer her sons more opportunity. There's no way my child's education is going to suffer because of the neighborhoods. The neighborhood I moved to is... Um, they have the program to help your children get to college. It's a better chance of getting a scholarship because my kids, they don't play sports. They're just, they're educated, very uh, smart kids. So the odds of them getting a scholarship in Dallas would have been a little slim because Dallas mostly focus on football or whatever sports you play. And my children are science kids. So out here, it was a lot better because my 18-year-old has already got a scholarship. Kids are adjusting. They don't like being the new kid, but they do know what's for the best because they know what our goal is, and that is to graduate high school and graduate college. Moving to Opportunity was an unprecedented experiment. It cost hundreds of millions of dollars and enrolled thousands of families and some of the top researchers from the country's best universities. They hoped to find what they saw in Gautreaux, that pulling families out of concentrated poverty and helping them move to low-poverty neighborhoods would lead to increased incomes and better educational results. But when the first results poured in, researchers found none of that. Moving to opportunity was seen by some as a colossal failure. Here's Marjorie Turner again. We did not see uh, 
clear evidence of improved educational outcomes, and we did not see uh, any clear evidence of improved employment or income. The lack of evidence around education and employment was a big disappointment, and it caused some people to declare MTO to have been a failure, and it caused some people to say, see, neighborhood doesn't matter. MTO was surely a disappointment, but perhaps it wasn't the outright failure that some claimed it to be, because even as negative economic results piled up, the researchers saw something surprising, something they weren't even looking for. People who had moved seemed to be healthier, a little physically healthier, and their mental health was improving. Their anxiety and depression was abating. And that sure was news to HUD. Mark Schroeder again. The experiment was a surprise from beginning to end. It was going to be an experiment in economic mobility, social mobility. Nobody presented moving the opportunity as a health intervention. In the beginning, health was not on HUD's radar, and MTO participants weren't necessarily thinking about it either. Stephanie DeLuca remembers her very first MTO interview with a voucher recipient in Baltimore. I remember the door opening and this mom who was a bus driver for the city school system let me and and my interview partner in. And I remember this mom telling us about her daughter and she had said, um, you know, it's funny now that you're asking about it, but her asthma went away after we moved here. And she sort of lit up um, and she had said, I remember when we got accepted for MTO, the program, it felt like Christmas. And I'd gotten a big Christmas gift and we, we knew we were going to move and we had to figure out how to get our stuff into a truck and it was the best Christmas ever. And, and the comment on the daughter's asthma was almost an afterthought. But the research was clear. We did see quite significant um, improvements in physical and mental health, um, particularly in the mental health of women and girls. Marjorie Turner. People's mental and physical health is profoundly important uh, in and of itself and for their longer-term prospects. And there's a lot of evidence that when moms have depression and other mental health issues, it, it has profound consequences for their children's development and their children's well-being. So the idea that we were going to declare something a failure because all it did was improve women's health, I thought was a pretty wrong conclusion. Moving from an extreme poverty neighborhood where nearly half of residents live below the poverty line to a low poverty place has a remarkable impact on well-being. Lisa Janetian was on the team that studied moving to opportunity voucher recipients' health. Janetian explains how they measured mental health. We devoted a lot of the measurement for the adults and for the youth to capturing really a full spectrum of mental health disorders. The results were startling. Improvements to mental health of MTO voucher holders was about equal to the benefits of psychiatric treatment. Depressive symptoms dropped by 40%. Psychological distress and anxiety decreased. Calm and peacefulness increased. And the longer families stayed in better neighborhoods, the more likely that their mental health improved. Stephanie DeLuca witnessed the turnaround in mental health, too. 
One mother said in an interview, um, she had moved from one of the high-rise public housing projects on the west side uh, to a more residential neighborhood in another part of the city. And she said, you know, where I was living before, I felt trapped, caged, and worthless in an atmosphere of absolutely no progress, where no one, no one encouraged anyone. And then she went on to describe the place she was living after the move as a place where there was greenery and birds chirping and less cement. And she said something about the greenery, it softens you. And researchers found that mental health benefits weren't limited to adults. More than 10% of teenage girls living in the projects experienced psychological distress. But the young women whose families got moving to opportunity vouchers, their rate of distress was virtually non-existent. Marjorie Turner hypothesizes why. There's strong arguments that feeling safe from um, physical violence, but also the threat of sexual violence that girls in particular um, escaped from. In Rochelle's old neighborhood in Dallas, that rang true. So it was safe at first, but the landlord owned all the houses on that street. And I think he gave up on doing his background check and just started letting, you know, anyone move in. We had a gentleman. He was very violent, threatened majority of the females on the street. That's what made it unsafe. Moving didn't only impact mental health. The researchers also measured physical health. They found that extreme obesity decreased and diabetes rates were nearly cut in half, about the same impact as a pharmaceutical intervention. But it wasn't clear why. Lisa Genetian again. I remember just working really hard on the nutritional stuff, right? Like we asked a lot of questions about drinking soda, eating fruits, you know, like a whole range. Um, and I think we were a little surprised that we didn't see a lot there. Astonishingly, people became healthier even though their behaviors didn't change. They weren't eating better, they weren't exercising more, and yet the researchers found observable changes in physical health. Just thinking about kind of the stress in living in unsafe neighborhoods. There's a whole literature around stress getting under the skin, right? Um, and so you imagine that the opportunity to move into a neighborhood that feels at least safer, less crime-ridden perhaps, um, would reduce some of that stress. Alyssa Eppel concurs. She's a professor of psychiatry at the University of California, San Francisco, who's studied the impact of stress on health for nearly 30 years. There are many forms of psychological stress. And at the heart of stress is survival stress. We are primates, we are animals. When we feel our, our livelihood is threatened, our body is under real physical threat, we mount a response appropriate to that, which is a pretty impressive, phenomenal change in every cell in the body, every hormone, in, of course, in our stress response system. And when we're living in the matrix of unsafety in certain neighborhoods, that system doesn't go back to baseline. Rather, baseline changes to an elevated level of stress, even during sleep. And that stress has multiple biological impacts. There are 
direct relationships between chronic stress and prediabetes. Which helps explain how rates of extreme obesity and diabetes in MTO voucher recipients fell simply because they moved to a safer, less stressful environment. By reducing the level of physiological threat stress in their body, their body is taking in calories and metabolizing it in a healthier way. They're not secreting excessive insulin and glucose all the time. And so when they're eating, they're not having those spikes that can really create not only mood swings, but those risk factors for all chronic diseases of aging, and particularly diabetes. And the young Black and Latina mothers whose households enrolled in MTO are in the demographic that faces the most stress to begin with. When we look at people who are, for example, younger, of a socially marginalized group, a group targeted for discrimination, and female, we see the highest levels of stress. The chronic stress is leading to many signs of accelerated aging. It tends to lead to shorter telomeres. The telomeres are the caps at the ends of chromosomes that protect our genes, and they shorten with years of aging, but they shorten at different rates. Aging is so elastic, and it turns out that our daily habits, lifestyle, and mental health shape the rate of shortening. And the telomere length studies with neighborhood point to trust and safety as factors that protect telomeres in in poor neighborhoods. And the better the neighborhood quality among middle class neighborhoods, the better the cellular aging, the longer the telomeres. So stress shortens telomeres, which accelerates aging. But neighborhoods with social cohesion cushion against that stress. Moving to opportunity, voucher recipients experience changes to their stress levels alongside their change of neighborhood. In her interviews, Stephanie DeLuca also saw a change in their perspectives. There's this idea that more things are possible. Another mom in MTO in Baltimore, she said she had, she was looking out at the 14th floor of the Murphy Homes, which was one of the housing projects, and said, I know my actual home is out there somewhere. It's not here. And she said, if, if it had not been for the MTO program, I would not have known what it would have been like to live in a positive environment and to live like middle class people live. And I wanted that. Moving to Opportunity was a watershed moment in our understanding that neighborhoods impact health. Good things happen to health and longevity when people live in safer, less stressful environments. Is better health alone worth incentivizing people to move? We say yes, but that question is now moot. Moving to Opportunity, a program full of surprises, had one final twist. In 2016, a team of researchers led by Roz Chetty at Harvard used new data sets to measure the outcome of kids who participated in MTO in the 1990s. Those kids grew up and it turns out MTO aged well. Here's Doug Rice from HUD. They were able to show that the long-term impacts for kids were very good uh, by standards of social science experiments. So especially for younger children, children who were younger than 13, when families use their voucher to move, 
they uh, the rates at which they attended college were 30% higher than the control group. Uh, they were about 30% less likely to become single parents as young adults, and they also had higher incomes. And uh, these were really strong effects. In season three of Century Lives, we focused on the power of community and how stable, supportive neighborhoods can increase longevity. So how do more people access better neighborhoods and that opportunity for a healthier, longer life? Marjorie Turner offers her thoughts. Baking MTO into the way the housing voucher program works is is a part of what needs to be a much larger solution. So just backing up, over more than a century, our country built separate and unequal neighborhoods uh, on the basis of race. And it did so both by excluding people of color from neighborhoods rich with resources and opportunities and by withdrawing investment from the neighborhoods in which people of color lived. So it's, it's both a you can't come and live here and we're not going to put any money into the places that you do live. Those separate and unequal neighborhoods are perpetuating inequalities in health, in education, in successful um, development, in work, in employment, um, in wealth building. And that if we don't dismantle that system of separate and unequal neighborhoods, we're not going to make much headway on all these other inequitable and unjust circumstances that are undermining our society. It's not just about going, and it's not just about staying. I would say, though, that the big lesson from the MTO research is that we need public policies that enable families to move to safe, well-resourced, opportunity-rich neighborhoods, if and when they want to. But we also need to restore safety, uh, amenities, opportunities, quality services to the neighborhoods where people with low incomes and people of color are concentrated. The takeaway from this research is not, let's help everybody move. The takeaway is let's make sure that everybody can choose a neighborhood that supports their well-being and their long-term life chances. We can't just help people move out of distressed neighborhoods. We also have to reinvest, and we absolutely have to do both those things. If it could go into effect and be sustained over a couple of decades, I think we'd be a different country. A different America. We started the season by telling the story of life expectancy and healthy longevity in this country, how it began to diverge from other nations 50 years ago, and that our failures over the last half century impact all of us, rich and poor, white and black, urban and rural. But the burden has always fallen unequally on the poor, everywhere from our beleaguered urban neighborhoods to the economic devastation of rural America. But if there is a single thing we discovered in this season, is that there's promise in a different America. In a country that provides decent housing as in Co-op City, that invests in its neighborhoods like in Woodlawn, that supports strong families as in Presidio, and that nurtures community institutions as in Monticello. 
It's always good to see what other countries are doing, but we can see the vision of a different and better America right here at home if we know where to look. The producers of Century Lives are Carrie Thompson and Aaron Bump. Music for this episode was provided by Audio Network and Jay-Z. Century Lives is a production of the Stanford Center on Longevity, where our mission is to support ideas and research so that century-long lives are healthy and rewarding ones. You can find out more about us at longevity.stanford.edu. Thanks for listening. I'm Ken Stern.